my dear brethren and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ I don't know about all of you gathered here this evening but for me it seems only a very short time since we concluded our last class for 1995 because that was almost around about two months ago rather interesting to just deliberate for a few seconds upon the fact that two months have passed they passed very very rapidly but as I was preparing the material for this class tonight I couldn't help thinking to myself that it seemed only a week or two since we'd had the last class and time goes that quickly and it's very very important that we remember that that time is passing very quickly that David was one who was aware that our life is but a vapour another one who knew that was Moses who in Psalm 90 the only psalm in the book of Psalms attributed to Moses wrote concerning the wandering of the children of Israel in the wilderness so teach us to number our days that we might apply our hearts unto wisdom so time goes very quickly whether we're active ecclesially or whether it's a bit of a break when we uh, have a chance to rest a little perhaps but nevertheless we do need to bear those things in mind and it's very very good that Yahweh has granted us the opportunity in the absence of the coming of our Lord up to this time to gather together once again that we might together put our heads into the word of God and be strengthened and encouraged and exhorted therefrom and in our study this evening you will have remembered I trust that we got as far as verse 47 in this chapter with our class for the final class for 1995 so in effect we take up the narrative in verse 48 and hope God willing to complete this chapter this evening because we're dealing here with a great drama all the things that we've been looking at up to this point in this chapter is now going to come to culmination but not only that there are many many very important and very profound things that Yahweh is going to set before us in these verses it's not just a narrative of the exciting drama in which David defeated the mighty Goliath it is a scriptural narrative inspired by Yahweh that contains many many vital principles of divine revelation that we ourselves might identify ourselves with David and the faithful associated with him that we might recognize Goliath for who he was and what he represented and that we might be strengthened and encouraged in our mutual walk together toward the kingdom of God and so you will recall that the Philistine came in verse 41 he came on and drew near unto David and the man that bare the shield went before him and when the Philistine looked about and saw David he disdained him for he was but a youth and ruddy and of a fair countenance and the Philistine said unto David am I a dog? we considered that little point and found that the answer was in the affirmative yes he was a dog that was the correct answer to that question because he was an unclean animal and he represented the flesh in all its power and glory and ungodliness when I say glory we mean the glory of the flesh the glory in which the flesh does glorify itself so he said to David am I a dog that thou comest to me with staves we notice the interesting point there that he only mentioned, he only noticed the staff in David's hand. He had not noticed the sling, nor had he noticed the stone that was to very soon bring about the end of his life. So we read that the Philistine cursed David by his gods. 
So he invokes the gods of the Philistines as David, in the next few verses, invokes the God of Israel. So it's not just a matter of a battle between two men. It is a question of gods in battle against each other. The gods of the Gentiles versus the God, the one and only God of Israel. And so in verse 45, David responded to the uh, uh, challenge of Goliath, showing that he was by no means phased, nor was he in any way cowed by the might of this great giant standing before him. David says to him in verse 45, Thou comest to me with a sword, and with a spear, and with a shield. But I come to thee in the name of Yahweh Sabaoth, the Elohim of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. And remember earlier on we saw that that was one of the great things that distressed David more than anything else. The fact that this man was able to stand forth representing ungodly Gentile power and to do so in defiance of Israel's God and in total disregard for him. I come to thee in the name of he who will be the armies and the mighty ones of the armies of Israel. So in verse 46 he tells the great Goliath, This day will Yahweh deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee, and take thine head from thee, and I will give the carcasses of the armies of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air, and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is mighty ones in Israel. And all the assembly, and there remember he turned because here he is speaking of the Ecclesia. Here he turns and looks upon the people of Israel still in fear and terror behind him, the army of Saul. He says that all this assembly may know that Yahweh saveth not with spear and sword and spear. For the battle is Yahweh's and he will give you into our hands. And so with these words we find that we take up this narrative in verse 47 that we might just make sure that we understand clearly what David is saying here. You'll notice in verse 47 David's use of the plural. He will give you into our hands. And in that sense he typifies the multitudinous Christ body. But at the same time with those words which no doubt he shouted forth with a voice loud enough to carry across the valley to Saul and the army of Israel. He is exhorting them there that if they share his faith, then Yahweh will give them the victory. And not simply a victory to be identified with David. In the same way as our Lord Jesus Christ has gone before us and he has overcome the Goliath, he has defeated him, once and for all he has defeated him but if we follow him into battle in the warfare of faith we will share that victory with him so you see these words have a wonderful application to us today we have the Lord Jesus Christ saying that he will give you that is the sin power into our hands and thereby speaking of the multitudinous Christ body he's saying to Israel Yahweh will fight for us And so therefore, we need to remember that he will fight for us too. 
as he did for David and as he did on this occasion for the army of Israel who as we shall see in a moment were completely turned around they developed their faith they became motivated by the elements of faith and they learned to exhibit trust and confidence in the mighty power of Yahweh who is indeed the mighty ones of the armies of Israel we need to remember always brethren and sisters that today we are part of one army as long as we stand firm in the principles of the truth and we remain united and of one mind in the vital principles that lead to eternal salvation. In passages such as Ephesians chapter 6 where Paul exhorts us to put on the whole armour of God and other passages such as 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verses 1 to 4 and 5 where he talks about a soldier in Christ and the attributes that he must have. We are engaged in a warfare and it is the warfare of faith and it is the warfare against sin first of all within ourselves and then from any other source from which it might come upon us or come to us. And so we today represent the army of spiritual Israel in the warfare of faith. And you know how that an army must be loyal to their leader and their commanding officer they must be loyal to one another they must stand by one another in an army men are trained to help to defend one another to keep together to stand as one to go forward as one to stand firm as one when the necessity arises and so there is the very important exhortation that comes to us from those words and so in verse 48 it goes on to tell us that at this point as though David has finished this wonderful speech of encouragement and exhortation to the people of Israel and of course to the faithful of Yahweh down through all the ages. In verse 48 it says, And it came to pass when the Philistine arose and came and drew nigh to meet David, but David hasted. Now there's a very interesting and a very significant point there where it says in the narrative at the beginning of verse 48 that the Philistine arose now Young's literal translation renders it the Philistine hath risen which appears to imply that although he strutted forth clothed in all, clothed in all this heavy armour as we see him depicted in the life size illustration over on the wall there uh, on my right your left uh, that he was uh, found it a bit too much for him and no doubt a, a, a chair was placed there or some sort of a form was placed there so that he was able each day of these 40 days to go forth to intimidate and to provoke the army of Israel with his words of challenge and to strut up and down in his usual way but then he would find it all a little bit heavy a little bit hard going and he would have to sit and so therefore the narrative is really saying that he hath risen so he must have been seated at the time when David began his approach now here's an interesting thing the image that was seen by Nebuchadnezzar has got to stand erect upon its feet at the time when it goes forth against Israel and against the Middle East at the time when it is going to be struck by the stone cut out without hands as was the case with David's stone and you might remember that Daniel in speaking to Nebuchadnezzar 
said this, this great image whose brightness was excellent stood before thee. And here we have this wording here, that the Philistine hath risen. So in other words, he stand up now, stands up now in all his fleshly glory. You can see all of him. From head to toe, he's all there. And he is parading himself forward, ready to meet David in mortal combat. Exactly as the giant of Nebuchadnezzar's image will go forth to meet the Lord Jesus Christ and the multitudinous body. And it's very interesting to consider that that, is, that parallel is uh, magnified by the fact that the word stood in Daniel, as we've referred to it, and the word arose in the verse here are identical words. They're exactly the same words, except that the word is rendered as stood in Daniel chapter 2. Here it is rendered as arose. There is just a slight difference, and that is that the word in Samuel is in the Hebrew, whereas the word in Daniel 2 is in the Chaldee. But you'll find in your concordance, Strong's concordance, he gives one number as number 68 and the other as 69. So in effect, virtually they are identical words, just a slight difference because one is in the Hebrew and the other is a Chaldean word. So we find the next thing that happens, when the Philistine arises and stands forth in all his fleshly might and power and glory, the next thing we read is that David hasted and ran. Now we should think very carefully about that phrase. David hasted and ran. And do you know something? That would have been the very opposite of what Goliath would have anticipated. Because lifted up in his pride and in his arrogance, he would have assumed that David would have advanced very, very slowly. Very, very slowly. Trying to eke out a few more minutes of life before the Philistine would cane down. That's how Goliath would have thought. But you see, here is an exhortation too. Because when it says that David hasted and ran, do you realise what we're seeing there? We're seeing a young man, a young teenage boy, showing a faith that was not only bright and shining, but zealous and enthusiastic. He wasn't going to waste any time on this matter. You've got a bright, shining faith here. And the zeal and the enthusiastic attitude of going forth in the fullness of faith to perform the will of Yahweh. There's an exhortation that I think we all need, don't we? That we might have that same spirit. That we might have a similar faith. That we might be anxious to pursue the warfare against, the, the, the warfare against sin. That we might see the example of David and the greater David, the Lord Jesus Christ, and follow their steps in that regard. But as well as that, we need to consider that this swift action on David's part would certainly have a very, very brilliant tactical move. Because, you see, he would have come within striking distance of the giant, bearing in mind the fact that he's using his sling and the stone, he would have come within striking distance of the giant very quickly before Goliath had an opportunity to collect himself. 
Goliath would not have expected this. There's no way in the world he would have expected this. So he would not have been ready either for attack or defence. In fact, in all probability, when he rises up to meet David and he suddenly sees this young man running across the floor of that valley towards him, running! Goliath, in all probability, would have been standing there with his jaw slightly open, a yard or two, at the very effrontery and the unexpectedness of this action. So you see, here is this young man making this move in a way that would have been totally unexpected by his adversary. Now let's see the point of this also. You see, David didn't expect that Goliath would suddenly drop dead through some divine miracle while David himself sat in a tent somewhere with his feet up. He didn't expect that, otherwise if he had it, he wouldn't have been here doing what he is doing now. You see, David knew only too well that whilst Yahweh would fight for David's cause, yet he himself must manifest faith in action. That's exactly what he's doing. This is not just faith. This is faith in action. So we have a combination of Yahweh's miraculous power and David's faith in action together producing this tremendous victory over the flesh. And wasn't that so with the Lord Jesus Christ? Didn't he display the same shining faith, the same zeal, the same enthusiasm unwaveringly in the service of his Father to fulfil his Father's will? And so in verse 49 we're introduced to the stone, one stone, although we recall that he took five. We notice in verse 49 that David put his hand in his bag and took thence a stone and slang it and smote the Philistine. A stone. Now you know this is a remarkable thing. And I'm going to leave it to you to trace this through for yourselves in Scripture. The use of the term stone. If you'd like to turn briefly, keeping a hand in 1st of Samuel 17, back to Genesis. There's a great deal that we can do in relation to the spiritual significance of a stone as used in relation to God manifestation. And here we find a remarkable instance in regard to the prophecies of Jacob, which related initially to the twelve tribes, his sons, but of course if you study Genesis 49, as no doubt many of you have, you'll find that it is a, a, a chapter of scripture with profound prophetic value and import. For example, we have in verse 9 in regard to Judah, the fact that when Israel was going to have their true king, he would not come from Benjamin, as did Saul, or from any other tribe, but from Judah. For example, in verse 9, Judah is a lion's wolf. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down. He couched as a lion. There is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? Then notice verse 10. The scepter, which relates to the king, shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver. 
there was a kingdom being established from between his feet until Shiloh come and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. It's very interesting the number of times that Brother Thomas in past books such as Elvis Israel and Eureka refer to this wonderful passage and constantly in his writings he used to refer to the Lord Jesus Christ as Shiloh because of its importance and because of its significance. The word Shiloh is a very interesting word. It's a word that has two meanings. It signifies one cent but it also signifies tranquility or the place of rest. And the Lord Jesus Christ is both of those things. He was one sent by Yahweh who will provide a place of tranquility and rest for the faithful people of Yahweh. Now with that in mind, just turn the page if you would to verse 24. And here is where we have an example of the use of the stone. And as a matter of interest, where the word stone occurs here, it is the same word that we have in, uh, in Samuel, in the uh, first of Samuel 17, that we're dealing with now. Identical word. Verse 24 says, But his bow abode in strength, and the arms of his hand were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. And from thence, that is, from the mighty God of Jacob, from thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Now isn't that an incredible thing that in this remarkable prophecy Jacob puts together the qualities of the shepherd with a symbology of the stone power of Israel. The stone that is going to destroy the power of flesh. The stone that is going to destroy sin in the symbolic sense. The stone that is going to destroy sin in ecclesiastical and political manifestation. And there it is in Genesis 20, 49 and verse 24. Now it's interesting too that we have, when we look at this word stone, the same word also in Daniel chapter 2 in regard to the stone that was cut out with our hands and smote Nebuchadnezzar's image. In these three passages, the same word. You'll find it elsewhere as well when you go through this. But you see, in effect, we've got a remarkable comparison here and a very, very wonderful parallel because although both these stones are cut out without hands, so to speak, they are different stones. They're different types of stones. Although the word used both by Daniel and by, here in the case of Samuel, the words are identical because we know that here as we dealt with when we looked at the question of these five stones taken out of the brook you remember we showed you five stones that came from that very brook they were washed smooth they were white representing the righteousness of Christ they were smooth as they had been washed by the water over countless generations of time the stones in that brook washed by the water which typifies the washing of the water by the word but the stone that we have in Daniel although the word is the same we read simply that it was a stone cut out without hands and therefore we do not look there for a stone that is so much smoothed by the water the symbology is different in Daniel we have probably a rougher kind of stone 
Why would we have a smooth stone, the symbology of which we can readily understand in Samuel, but a stone very similar, but not smooth in Nebuchadnezzar's image? Well, the answer surely is this, that the altar was to be made with stones that were simply taken from the earth, taken from the ground. And remember Yahweh said to Israel, if you raise up a tool upon it to shape it in any way or whatever, to smooth it or to shape it in any form, it is polluted. You will pollute the altar. And so therefore that stone represented a stone exactly as Yahweh had made it. There is the type of the Lord Jesus Christ. But when we see that type of stone also used for the making of the altar, it means that that stone in Daniel represents for us God in sacrificial manifestation. Because we can identify that type of stone with the building of the altar. And so we have these two aspects of the stone. The one that is washed and smoothed by the water of the word and shaped and rounded. And the other in its purely natural form. But not natural in the human sense, but as God made it. And Yahweh was the one who brought that son into the world. So here we have only one stone that David needs for this work. Only one was required. And the antitype is seen by the one sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. By his one sacrifice, as in passages such as Hebrews 9.26 and Hebrews 7.26 and 27, we have represented the one sacrifice of Christ once and for all. So here is a stone that goes forth unerringly, as in the Lord Jesus Christ, and finds its mark by bringing down sin and crashing it to the ground. So we read in verse 49, that the stone sunk into his forehead. And it's probably pointless to point out that he was annihilated at the very point of the thinking of the flesh. And next to that I would be inclined to note Romans 8 verse 7, where Paul makes it very, very clear that the thinking of the flesh is at enmity with God and that the mind of the flesh can have nothing else done to it other than to be destroyed. We need to remember that the mind of the flesh is not something that can be rehabilitated. You cannot go to work on the mind of the flesh and make it a better mind. As Genesis 3 verse 15 so eloquently demonstrates, it has to be crushed and replaced with the mind of the spirit. And uh, so therefore the carnal mind is something that has to be rendered powerless as the wording is in Romans 8 and verse 7. So here is typified Christ's victory over the flesh. Of course now of course we must ask ourselves the question what of ourselves? Because each of us possess a body which has the same impulses and propensities as those that were within Goliath. But also let us remember those same propensities were within David. And yet they were two totally different men because their minds worked in different directions. David had the mind of the spirit and was motivated by that. 
as the word shows us time and again whereas Goliath knew nothing more and understood nothing more than the carnal mind of the flesh so here is represented Christ's victory over the flesh but as far as we are concerned we have every one of us a Goliath within us that has to be conquered that has to submit to the stone power in effect to submit to the stone that has been washed by the word that is the teaching and the requirements of the Son of God in all those things that he taught that we might become a part of the divine family and as Paul tells us in Galatians 5 and at verse 24 we all possess the flesh with its affections and lusts we have the word hopefully we have the word that dwells in us richly and it comes to grips with those affections and lusts of the flesh but nevertheless they have to be overcome they are there they don't just go away and we can't just pretend that they're not there anymore so in the death of Goliath we have that symbology represented to us but we also have typified Christ's victory over the nations in a political sense as we shall see a little more clearly in a short while the nations with their power are going to be destroyed and the minds of the peoples who survive the judgments of God which will begin with Armageddon a type of which we see here before us tonight in the valley of Elah here is a type of Armageddon we've already seen that in relation to some of the symbology and some of the terms used by Ezekiel that are identical to terms we find here but the peoples who survive those judgments are going to be impressed with the word of truth as the process of changing them will begin when they recognise Christ as the great saviour and redeemer of mankind the one who was to reign as king over all the earth with all nations united under one king in one kingdom you remember the words of Jeremiah 16 and verse 19 which will apply in this instance when the people will go and they will say our fathers have inherited vanity and lies and things wherein there is no profit and they will repudiate those things and as Isaiah 2 verses 2 to 4 says they are going to say let us go up to the mountain of God to the house of the God of Jacob and he will teach us his ways the mortal people are going to say that as enlightenment comes to them and so enlightenment came to the people of Israel at this time as well and so verse 50 tells us that David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and smote the Philistine and slew him but there was no sword in the hand of David here we have this wonderful language to tell us of David's victory so David prevailed over the Philistine you see here again we have a word that is very very firm and definite to prevail in the English sense of the word might be only a very temporary thing but the word here in the Hebrew means to tie fast or to bind or to make firm or to strengthen in such a way that his strength is beyond dispute of course we find the same in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ 
The same word is used in the servant prophecies in Isaiah chapter 42 uh, and at verse 6. Where the word here, the same word as prevail in 1st of Samuel 17, is here rendered as hold. Yahweh says here of his great son, of whom we've read in verse 1, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. And of him he says in verse 6, I, Yahweh, have called thee in righteousness, and will hold thine hand. Hold! I will hold thine hand. It's like saying, I will take thee by the hand, as I did with David, your father, and I will cause you to prevail. I will give you a strength. I will give you a power. I will give you an authority that will cause you to subdue the nations. Because that's the context of Isaiah 42 in this passage. I, Yahweh, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand or cause thine hand to prevail and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people and for a light of the Gentiles. How remarkable that is. And so the verse points out to us that this was done with a sling and a stone but no sword. Now why should it say that? Why bother to even put that in? Is it really relevant? Well, it must be, otherwise it wouldn't be there. You see, those words, with a sling and a stone, but no sword, do not attribute the victory to David's humble weapons. On the contrary, that very phrase points to the miraculous nature of the victory. No sword or recognised weapon. So there's obviously an implication that David's task by human standards to destroy this giant of flesh was unbelievably impossible. You see, when you think of that stone and what it did and the way in which that stone was directed and remember that Goliath had upon his head, as you can see over there in our, our image on the wall there, he had a helmet of brass upon his head, which meant that from that area between his eyes to where his helmet would commence was perhaps an inch of space, a few centimetres. That would be all. It wasn't as though David had a, a whole head of a giant as long as he hit him somewhere, it would cause him to fall down and then David could finish him off afterwards. That was not the way it was done and that was not the way it was supposed to be done. Here is a stone that is divinely guided to its mark. Here is the miracle. So when we read here with a sling and a stone but no sword, that might have seemed unbelievable to the mind of man. But it was not unbelievable to David because he knew from whence had come the victory. So now we come to a very astonishing point in verse 51 where we learn that David ran and stood upon the Philistine. Why would he do that? David ran and stood upon the Philistine took his sword 
cut out of the sheath thereof and slew him and cut off his head. Well the symbology must be very clear because it undoubtedly relates to Genesis 3 verse 15. And it was the habit of a victor when he had his uh, adversary conquered to have him on the ground and place his foot upon his neck. Genesis 3 verse 15 there's only one thing to be done with sin and the sin power and that is to crush its head which is what Genesis 3 verse 15 promises would be fulfilled to the seed of a woman. David in the typical sense is doing that. And we've had mention made tonight of Psalm 8. Two great Psalms that represent David's victory over Goliath. I believe that Psalm 144 would have been written much earlier in David's life than Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is a psalm that looks back in retrospect. And if you study that psalm carefully, you will understand, brethren and sisters, that David, with the knowledge that he had and his understanding of the promises and the covenant made in Eden with Eve, that he understood that he was a type of his greatest son, the son of David and son of God who would destroy the power of sin. I believe he understood that. And I believe that that is evident from the fact that Psalm 8 is based upon Genesis 1 verse 26. Something which Paul points out in Hebrews 2 has never yet been fulfilled. It hasn't yet been fulfilled because all things have not yet been placed under him. Hebrews 2, Psalm 8, Genesis 1 verse 26, placed under him. David ran and stood upon the Philistine. There is the type of the fulfilment of Genesis 3 verse 15. But look, in addition to that, with a hand in 1 Samuel 17, come back to Joshua, a very interesting passage here in Joshua chapter 10, where we have exactly the same symbology. Quite astonishing, really. Joshua chapter 10. In verse 1, we're introduced to the king of Jerusalem, who, of course, is a Gentile, godless Gentile, after the pattern of Goliath. And it's very fascinating to realise that the title of Melchizedek in a slightly altered form was still being maintained so many centuries later in the days of Joshua. Because in verse 1 of Joshua 10 we read, Now it came to pass when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, had heard how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it, as he had done to Jericho and her king. So he had done to Ai and her king. And how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them. That they greatly feared, feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city and so forth. So he gathers together various other kings that together they might form a confederacy to stand against Joshua and the army of Israel. But the fascinating thing here is this title Adonai Zedek, which is really only a corruption of Melchi Zedek. Melchizedek, king of righteousness. Here we have ruler of righteousness, which is really only a corruption of it. And I believe that here in Joshua chapter 10 and verse 1, we have a type of the papal power and the Pope of Rome in particular, who claims to be the king of righteousness or the lord of righteousness, being Christ's direct representative upon earth during this present time. Here is someone here 
an ungodly Gentile, a Goliath type, who dares to uh, use an abbreviated form of the title of Melchizedek. King of righteousness, this man. Well, we know what happens in Joshua chapter 10. But what should interest us now is what is found in verse 24. After they gained the victory, and we must mention this just ever so briefly, it came to pass when they brought out those kings unto Joshua, that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said unto the captains of the men of war, which went with him, Come near, put your feet upon the necks of these kings, and they came near and put their feet upon the necks of them. Do you see what Joshua does as a type of Christ? Here is the Yahushua. And what is he doing? He is inviting the captains of the people to come and share the victory. He gives them the victory. Isn't that remarkable? And then of course, Psalm 110 and verse 1, which we have said many times, is more quoted in the New Testament, this one verse, than any other single verse in Old Testament Scripture. More than 20 times Psalm 110 and verse 1 is quoted. And here it is also related to David's victory over Goliath. Psalm 110 verse 1. And let's all bear that in mind. The most quoted verse in the Old Testament that is found in New Testament Scripture. And what is it related to? David's victory over Goliath. Look at verse 1. Yahweh said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. There's Genesis 3 verse 15. There's the fulfilment of the type in Joshua 10 verse 24. And as we go down through that psalm, you'll notice verse 6, it says, He shall judge among the nations, which of course David did in a typical sense. In the seven great military campaigns, in which he subjugated the nations round about him, which answered to the seven thunders of the apocalypse, wherein Christ will similarly subdue the nations. Verse 6 of the psalm says, He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with the dead bodies. He shall wound the rush over many countries. Same word as in Ezekiel 38 and verse 2. But look at verse 7 if you want a further link. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up the head. The rest of that, no doubt, we can put together ourselves. So we find now that David takes Goliath's own sword and he slays him. And that also you will find referred to in various psalms that are very interesting in that regard. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was defeated, Verse 51 at the end of it, the top of our right hand page. When the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. They fled. And let's remember that when we started our study of this chapter, there they were, all assembled on the other side of the valley, just as proud, just as arrogant as Goliath, because they had a champion. What's going to happen when Gog is destroyed? What's going to happen with the Adonai Zedek, the Pope of Rome, with all his power 
and his whole system is destroyed. Where are the nations going to turn to then? They're going to flee from the presence of Christ until they learn to submit to him. Exactly as we have it here. So here was an army of flesh assembled on that other side of the valley opposite Israel. Israel were the ones in fear. But now it has changed. And Israel, as we know, down through all the centuries, had always feared the Gentiles. Because warfare between Jew and Gentile has never ceased since the days of Abraham. It has always been there. Jews everywhere, except perhaps only in their own land of Israel, fear the Gentiles. And we know, do we not, that anti-Semitism is something that at the best of times, in almost every country in the world, is only just below the surface. And it doesn't take very much to start it off and to sound it off again. But you see, the Jews who are fearful are now strengthened. And it is the Philistines that flee because faith has triumphed. Do you remember those wonderful words in Hebrews 11 and verse 34 that describe to us some of the things that are accomplished through faith? Put to flight the aliens. Put to flight the armies of the Gentiles. And so forth. Achievements that are wrought through faith are limitless, brethren and sisters. They are limitless. Now if faith worked here in the days of David, where it worked for all those who are cackled in Hebrews chapter 11, does faith work today? Can the same results be achieved today if it is according to the will of Yahweh? Have not every one of us had experiences in life where we have been placed in situations where our faith has been under trial, where we have been in the most difficult situation, out of which we have not known which way to turn to try and escape from it. And we have made this matter, this trial, perhaps a form of persecution or suffering, a matter of prayer to, father, to the Father, rich in faith, using our faith to appeal to our God, and then find that somehow or other our prayer is answered and looking back later we don't know how we don't know what was achieved do we believe the words of Psalm 34 where David taught the men in the cave of Adullam that the angel of Yahweh encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them do we believe that? We must believe it. Otherwise, our claim to faith is not operating. It might be there theoretically. But faith is something that is very, very real. It's real in our lives. And that which can be produced as a result of faith through the hand of our God upon us in our lives is also real. It's not a theoretical thing as it wasn't in the first of Samuel 17 nor in any of the cases beginning with Abel right through Hebrews chapter 11. So the Philistines fled and in verse 52 the men of Israel and of Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines until thou come to the valley and the gates of Ekron and the wound of the Philistines fell down by the way to Sharain 
even unto Gath and unto Ekron. The place that we have there, Sharain, was in the territory of Judah, as Joshua tells us in chapter 15 and verse 36. They spoiled their tents. And then in verse 54 we have this other remarkable uh, record before us. That David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his armour in his tent. David took the head and brought it to Jerusalem. Now it's possible that that verse is parenthetic. It may be in a parenthesis. It may be something that David did a little later on. He might not have done it right there and then because certainly he next becomes engaged in conversation with Saul. Certainly it didn't happen right immediately on the spot there and then. We need to remember that Jerusalem at that time was still under the control of the hated Jebusites. It was not a safe place for David to be unless perhaps he went there in the darkness of night or something of that nature. But he certainly did go there. And it is an absolutely incredible type. Why would David do that? Why would David do that? Why would he take that head of the giant and take it and bury it at a place which we believe became known as Golgotha? Or in its Latin and Greek forms, Calvary. Which means the place of a skull. And it typifies the head of the serpent which was crushed once and for all when the Lord Jesus Christ was nailed up upon that stake and his life expired when he said, It is finished! And on the third day he rose to life and to glory. And you know, brethren and sisters, it is not at all beyond the realm of possibility knowing how exquisite is the unfolding of Yahweh's purpose. He's not a, it is not at all beyond reality that the Lord Jesus Christ may very well have been crucified and gained the victory over sin at the very spot where David had buried the skull of Goliath. And there is the victory over sin. And so during all this time, while he was going across that valley, he was reciting, I believe, Psalm 144. If you want to know what was going through the mind of David, it was a prayer. And I believe it's Psalm 144 that picks for us the thoughts of David. As he says in that psalm, What is man that thou art mindful of him? As he looks at this great lump of flesh on the other side of the valley. He didn't fear him because he knew that Yahweh's strength was with him. And he speaks of Yahweh in his prayer and he says, Thou hast taught my hands to war. In other words, I am prepared through faith to meet this giant and to conquer him and to lead the armies of Israel to victory over the Philistines and the Gentile power they represent. And in that psalm, his mind, as he goes across that valley of Elah, goes forward into the kingdom age as he sees the greatness and the wonders that will happen in Israel, the blessing of their children, their garners filled with corn, the productivity of the land. And all of those things are the things that dominated David's mind. Not his fear of Goliath, not wondering how large he was and how powerful he would be and how difficult it would be and that perhaps he'd win and perhaps he wouldn't. He knew he would gain that victory at that time because he was rich in faith. 
And so there in Psalm 144 you will find what was said, what went through David's mind. It was a prayer. He was engaged in prayer the whole of that time. And that is another reminder to us that faith is operative in the faithful. Faith is operative in the faithful. It's not just something we say we have. It's not just what we believe. It is something reflected in our confidence and our trust in Yahweh, the mighty one of Israel. And the fact that he can work for us. He can strengthen us. He can help us. And he will do all those things if our mind is set upon him in the principle of faith. And so with that we must come in verse 55 in the closing verses to the way in which Saul, we see David go forth to fight against the Philistine, said unto Abner, who was the captain of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As my, thy soul liveth, O king, I cannot tell. And the king said, Inquire thou whose son the stripling is. And as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistines, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son art thou? Now you know, sometimes we get asked the question, or have been asked the question, how come Saul would ask such a silly question? Well, he'd already had David in his house, in his household. David playing an instrument to calm Saul when he'd been in a very distressed state of mind. How could he be asking a question like this? But you see, the point of it is this. He doesn't say to Abner, who is he? He says, whose son is he? And that's a different question altogether. Because you see, he had forgotten David's family lineage. And that was an important matter in those days. Especially so in this case, because Saul had not only promised to make this man rich, but also to give him his daughter in marriage. But what we're really learning here is that Saul was something of a snob. He wanted to know into whose family his daughter was going to be married. And preferably it should be a family of some standing. Whereas of course, Jesse, the Bethlehemite, was a man of very humble means and a very humble position and a very humble household. But you see, Saul wanted this information because he wanted to know now he's faced with delivery. Who is he going to deliver to? It's very interesting, isn't it? A very powerful type. Because Saul here typifies Israel after the flesh, who did not know the origin of their Saviour when he came to them. They did not realise his origin, that he was from God, that he was the Son of God. In the same way as here, Saul has lost all sight of the fact that David is the son of Jesse. And so the time will come, as in Psalm 24 and Zechariah 13 and verse 6, that Israel will ask the question, who is the king of glory? And they'll be told who the king of glory is. And in Zechariah 13 and verse 6, they'll ask, where did you get these wounds in your hands? They will not know any more than Saul did the origin of their saviour until he makes himself known to them. And so David gives an answer to this question. A very simple answer in verse 58. The very last verse in the chapter. Saul said to him, Whose son art thou? Yadah, young man. And incidentally, all these words that are used here describing David's youth 
all point to the fact as all the other words have that we have considered up until now that the Hebrew words two or three different words that are used in this narrative describe a youth probably between the ages of about 15 and 17 or perhaps 18 that's very very uh, doubtful that he would have been anything more than 18 years of age I picture David here as being around about probably 16 or 17 certainly the words that are used to describe him are around about that age so how does David answer the king I am the son of thy servant Jesse the Bethlehemite and you remember what those words mean the one who stands out in the house of bread almost like a rebuke to Saul isn't it you should recognise the faith of my father he is a man of the truth he is a man of God and it is from him that I come almost like Christ isn't it and Jesse here is a type of Yahweh and so here we have the end of the narrative and we find that David prevails and he gains the victory and on this day he gained two notable victories the first was over himself as he embarked upon that journey that fearful journey across the floor of the valley of Elah to meet Goliath in mortal combat he had to suppress the flesh in every respect he had to fill himself with faith and the mind of the spirit so his first victory was over himself and it was the second victory that was over Goliath and in this sense we're reminded of the words of Proverbs 15 and verse 33 in his humility before his God and the fact that his greatness lay in his humility and his childlike faith because in that proverb we read that the fear of Yahweh is the instruction of wisdom and before honour is humility and he was the humble servant of Yahweh fulfilling the will of his God that God might be glorified and that in a typical sense sin might be overcome and the way made open for the salvation of a race who will manifest the glory of Yahweh in the age to come.